The good news is that you may be seated for a good long while. That may also be the bad news, I'm not sure. I want to do two things real quick at the beginning here that we always do on Easter. The first one is for me to say to you, He is risen! And the second is for me to ask you to close your eyes for a moment and in your mind's eye to picture the Sphinx, you know, like you do on Easter, the Sphinx in Egypt. Beth's eyes are open. She is a rebel. Close them, Beth. Come on. Think about the Sphinx. Now, I want you to, with every eye closed, every head bowed, point on your own person to the part of the Sphinx that stands out the most. All right, you can open your eyes now. That was weird, wasn't it? 95% of you pointed to your nose. Now, the Sphinx is a mythical winged monster with the head of a woman and the body of a lion, and yet you think only of the nose because the Sphinx's nose is broken off. The Sphinx may have beautiful eyes. We wouldn't know because we only see the missing nose. And I'd always wondered why the nose of the Sphinx was missing, And I had always assumed, and I think I even read somewhere, that it was just basic erosion and time. That the nose fell off because the nose was the weak point sticking out. And then after centuries and centuries of wind and sand, if something would fall, it would be the nose. But that's actually not true. Archaeologists can see very clearly the evidence of chisels being hammered down from the bridge of the nose downward and the nose being pried off from the sphinx. It seems in the late 14th century, a Sufi Muslim nobleman found the local peasants making offerings to the Sphinx to try and increase their harvest. And having zero patience for idolatry, my man ordered the nose of the Sphinx. He's basically Nicolas Caged. I want to take its face off. (laughs) And they were like, we got the nose. He said, good enough. But it wasn't just the Sphinx. In fact, Edward Blyberg, the curator of Egyptian art at the Brooklyn Museum, says the most common question he hears when he is leading people through their collection is, why are all the noses missing? And he said when he was younger, he too thought maybe it was just time and entropy and natural aging, but then he noticed that noses were missing even from flat reliefs. They'd been pried off or smashed. And it turns out that ancient Egyptians believed that the essence of a deity could inhabit an image of that deity. And so the defacing of these images was meant to deactivate an image's strength. As one god took prominence over another, or one pharaoh wanted to kind of erase the legacy of another, they would say, take the nose. If you take the nose, that means this image can no longer breathe and you're effectively killing it. Bleiberg says, these were not vandals recklessly, randomly striking out against works of art. In fact, the targeted precision of their chisels suggests that they were skilled laborers trained and hired for this exact purpose. What a job. But that's junior varsity compared to what God does to his would-be rivals in both of our texts today. A couple of weeks ago, I preached out of 1st and 2nd Samuel, two stories about the Ark of the Covenant, you know, from Indiana Jones, the gold-covered chest upon which the presence of the Holy God rested in the Old Covenant. And if you weren't here, let me just quickly recap. These were stories about the Ark of the Covenant being treated without reverence. The first one we looked at was people carrying the Ark in the way they shouldn't. They had it on a cart, and a guy reached out to keep it from tipping over, touched the Ark, and was struck dead. 
The second story we looked at was a story of Israel fighting their enemies, the Philistines, losing that battle, and then saying, we need to go back and get the ark because then we will be unstoppable. They'd been watching maybe too much Indiana Jones. And in those passages, we saw the ark being treated as common, uh, being used as a talisman. And I warned you that God must not be treated this flippantly. That we must treat him as holy, never commonplace, never as a good luck charm, never something we control and we pull out to use when we need him. But that is exactly the way the Israelites treated the ark in 1 Samuel. Despite it being holy, despite it having been kept in the tabernacle in the holy place, not just the holy place, but the holy of holies. So it's the holy of the holy of holies. Holy, holy, holy. And yet they treat it as if it were a jersey that they never wash and always wear during the playoffs because it makes their team win. No wonder God struck that guy dead when he reached out and touched it in 2 Samuel. And yet, this morning we think about Jesus Christ, who was not just the place where God's presence dwelt, but the very presence of God in our presence. God in the flesh. Far holier than any object or relic like the ark could ever be. And yet, when he was mistreated, no one was struck dead. When he was treated as commonplace and contemptible, instead of striking back or lashing out, he prayed for those who were crucifying him. He died for them. How can this be? I think we can find some insight for this Easter morning. If we look a little closer than we did at 1 Samuel 5, at this story of the stretch of time when the ark of Yahweh was in the land of the Philistines and the hands of God's enemies. And it's such a strange passage because it catches us off guard. Even every time I read it, and I've read it probably hundreds of times, we expect the hero to win, right? And when the hero doesn't win in a story, you say, why? And the first time you read this passage, you might say, oh, I see what's going on. It's a Rocky Three situation. Remember Rocky III? It's the one where he fought Mr. T. I was so excited about that. Rocky and Mr. T, a battle of the titans. Remember my, my dad and I watched it. We rented it from Showtime Video and popped it into the VCR. And we started watching it. And here's the big fight. Mr. T in one corner. Clubber Lang was his name. Rocky over here. They fight and fight. Rocky's on the ropes. He's getting beat real bad. My dad's going, ah, he's, he's going to come rallying at the last minute. Only he doesn't. He goes down. And loses the fight. And I remember my dad stood during the fight and kept getting closer and closer to the TV. I mean, the movie's called Rocky. And then, and then after the fight was over, he hits stop. He ejects it. Ka-chunk, up comes the tape. Pulls it out. Holds it up to the light and goes, oh, there's a ton more story left. This isn't the end. Of course, what Rocky had to do was go back to Philly, get back to his roots, get in the meat locker, start punching some sides of beef. Right, get strong again in the old way and then go back and win the fight at the end. And maybe we're thinking that's what needs to happen here. They need their crane technique. They need their over-the-top. That's a deep cut. They need the thing that's going to make them win, dominate. In this case, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's presence resides. And we go, all right, so maybe the Israelite army isn't the hero here. Maybe it's God who's the hero. In fact, yeah, that makes sense. In all of these stories, whether it's David and Goliath or Pharaoh's armies and the Red Sea or whatever, the champion is our God. And so when they bring him out, in a sense, and the champion seems to lose, it blows our minds. And it's a strange scene as the Philistines then take the ark back to Ashdod and place it in the temple of Dagon. Who's Dagon, you ask? Just your run-of-the-mill, half-fish, half-man pagan god. The chief god of the Philistines. 
They placed the ark at Dagon's feet or flippers or whatever to symbolize both that Israel's God has now been defeated and that he's on our side now because we got him right here. This is even more blasphemous than what the Israelites tried to do. And the absurdity of it, the infinite power of Jehovah God taken captive, his holy presence locked into a pagan temple, his glory now seemingly their glory, their victory. How can this be? The Philistines couldn't even keep Samson in a temple of Dagon for a few hours without him pulling the whole thing down all around them. But now the very presence of the very God is inside this pagan temple on display. The world is upside down and the power of darkness seems to be ruling the day. It's disorienting and disconcerting, especially if you were an Israelite at the time. But then chapter 5 begins. And in a sense, God awakens. He was not sleeping. He was just lying low. On day two of the captivity of the Ark of the Covenant, the priests of Dagon walk into their temple, ready for their shift to start, and find that, quote, Dagon has fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. The implications here are not subtle. But they're even less subtle. In William Tyndale's translation, the first ever English Bible, he writes this, and when they of Ashdod were up in the morning, behold, Dagon lay groveling upon the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they act like it's, whoops, just a mistake. Maybe it was a tremor. Maybe it was poltergeist. Whatever they had to tell themselves in order to not mess with their worldview. They say, quick, fix it. Pick him up. They lift him up. Put him back on their little pedestal. I mean, our God lifts us out of the miry pit of death and sin and, and destruction they have to pick up their God off the floor, like a couple kids who knocked over a vase and want to get it back in place before mom can see. All right, we got it back. No harm, no foul. Everything's okay. Then, day three of the ark's captivity, they enter the house of Dagon. He's downward dog again. Downward God? Whatever. He's, he's down, and it's even worse. The vase is broken. What are we going to do now? We're told he's just a trunk that's not what you want to see if you're a priest of Dagon. In fact, the Hebrew here is actually a little confusing. It says that his hands and, and head are kind of separate here and that only the Dagon remain. Dag means fish. It seems like just the fish part. is like, like the myrrh is still there, but the man is, is off somewhere else. Again, not so subtle, but the symbolism is even more inescapable if you are a pagan in the ancient Near East. First, your primary god falls on his face, bowing before a foreign god, one you thought you'd conquered and added to your own collection. That god should be working for you now, but now even worse, the head and hands have broken off of your god. Or have they broken off? I grew up reading the NIV. I remember every time I've read this story, I've always loved this story. His head and hands, it says, had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. And I thought, oh, he fell, he landed hard, and just like the nose on the sphinx, I assumed the hands and the head were the weak point, and they kind of busted loose. But the Hebrew here is not a regular word for break. It's not the word for when Eli breaks his neck, the chapter before. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, the word shaver. No, this is the word karat. It means to cut. When I was learning Hebrew, I remember remembering this one, karat, karate, chop, cut, okay? And that's perhaps what we see here in the ESV. It tells us that the head and hands had been cut off. They'd been chopped off very intentionally. And we're now on the threshold. This is way beyond knocking the nose off of the Sphinx. 
The head, that's obvious. Why the hands? Well, they were a sign, a symbol of authority and, and power. Even in our Bible, it speaks of our God and his mighty hand, reaching out his hand to save us, or his hand, we'll see here momentarily, uh, language of our God's hand being against the Philistines. Of course, also in the ancient Near East, there was no Geneva Convention. Cutting off a prisoner of war's head and hands was pretty standard as an intimidation tactic. His head and hands are where? On the threshold. That tells us one of two things. Either it's a very small temple, or it's almost like Dagon is trying to peace out of there. Right? I, I gotta get out of here because of this Yahweh ark that is in here with me. You see, they thought they had Israel's God captive, but he's not trapped with Dagon. Dagon's trapped in there with Yahweh and trying to escape. You know, we always think of Indiana Jones when we talk about the Ark of the Covenant, or I do anyway. I'm not alone, right? Tell me I'm, I'm not irreligious. Okay. And I think the only part of that movie that really holds up to a biblical understanding of what the Ark is is when they put the, the crate on it with the swastika and it burns the swastika right off. Always gives me chills. God allowed the seat of his presence among his people to be captured and placed here in this wicked place of death and hopelessness, but no idol can stand in his presence. No power or demon or principality, not even death itself, can stand before our God. And then we see here in verses 6 and 7, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how these things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. His hand is hard against us. Unlike our God, he still has a hand to be against us. And so they begin moving the ark from city to city amongst the Philistine territories. And everywhere it goes, there are rats. There are tumors, some kind of sores. We're not 100% sure what exactly it indicates, but something painful and, and in a sense humiliating. Some have suggested that perhaps the rats and the tumors together might indicate a, a proto-great uh, plague, black death type thing, but we don't know that. What we do know is that it's miserable and it goes on for seven months. Remember the significance of seven being completion, perfection, completely defeated, not only this God, but these people. And in chapter 6, their leaders finally get together and talk it out. They remember how Pharaoh was in a similar situation with the ten plagues and how he eventually buckled and said, fine, leave. But he didn't send them away empty-handed, right? They had they plundered the Egyptians. They said, we should, we should send something. Send the ark back, but send it back with something. What do you send back when you've captured, like, what's the standard thing? And somebody says, duh, five golden mice and five golden tumors. Surprised you didn't know that. Five golden, golden tumors. That's a specialty item. You, you, you have to special order that. You can't just walk in and buy it. But hold on, one of them says, before we go to all this trouble, let's make sure this isn't just some big series of coincidences. Let me recap. As soon as we put our ark in the temple, Dagon fell down. Maybe that was just a coincidence. But then he fell again, was beheaded, his hands chopped off, a plague then descends on that city at that time, we send it from Ashdod to Gath, more tumors and a great panic in that city. So we say we're sending it on to Ekron. Ekron's like, no, don't. All the same, God's hand is against them as well. So the lords of the Philistines get together and say, well, why don't we do a little experiment and see if it's really this God doing this? What? 
So they set up this elaborate test. They put the ark on a new cart. They put all the gold stuff on it. They hook up two cows, but these are not, these are not cows that have ever been used in any kind of transport or plowing or anything. They're milk cows. They've got new calves that are locked away, so they should want to stay put. They don't know what they're doing when they're hooked up to a cart. They say, if it, they just stand here like they should, then we'll know this was just a coincidence. But if they bring the ark back, then we'll know that this was truly the God of Israel. Well, immediately they follow this ark and the, the cows bring it directly to the Levitical city of Beth Shemesh in Israel. Man, I love this. Dagon can't pick himself up or get out the door. The ark of the Lord, the presence of Yahweh, not only conquers the pagan god, but the pagan people, and then proceeds to drive himself back to the city of the priestly tribe of the Israelites. And that's the story of the time that our God humiliated and beheaded a false god. But it's not a one-time story. This is actually a pattern in the Old Testament. Later in the same book, you know the story of David and Goliath? Got a stone into the head of the Philistine champion who has been defying God and blaspheming his name. And then David takes Goliath's own sword and chops his head off. In fact, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, sin enters the picture. We have the curse, the fall of man. And immediately after the curse is laid out, God says, But here's a silver lining, a great promise, a gospel. The seed of the woman will be against the seed of the serpent, and there will come one, a Messiah, an anointed one. The serpent will strike at his heel and injure his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. That's what we call the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, the crushing of the head of the God of this world, the father of lies, Satan himself. God, in this poetic description of the curse, kind of says, well, you're on your belly eating dust, you already got no hands, but the head I am going to take decisively at some point. And so Dagon, Goliath, all the rest are just previews of this ultimate defeating, deposing, and humiliating of evil. And a thousand years later, outside Jerusalem, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this motif. And in many ways, it follows the exact same outline as the story of the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of Dagon. First of all, we have God's presence, only more so. The ark was the place where God's presence would dwell when it was where it ought to be. Jesus is the fulfillment of the very idea of God's presence. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And just as the ark was mistreated by those who should have revered it and seemingly defeated by God's enemies, so Jesus was mistreated and it would seem defeated when he was arrested, condemned, tortured, beaten, mocked, and executed by his own and swallowed up into the enemy's stronghold. And again, the absolute absurdity of this. The infinite power of God taken captive. His holy presence locked into a tomb. His glory now seemingly death's glory. Death's victory, Satan's victory. The power of darkness again seems to rule the day. In fact, Jesus said that very night before, this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus was indeed sealed up in the tomb. But as the Dagon a thousand years earlier, on the third day, death is thrown down and shattered before him when our Lord awakens and bursts forth. He did it at daybreak. How perfect. His passion began at night. They arrested him under cover of darkness, 
this corrupt trial came about during uh, darkness and, and night. And when he hung on the cross, it was midday, but the sun was darkened for three hours. He was laid in the tomb as the sun was setting, but he arose from the grave as the sun is rising. Our bright and morning star, the true light shining forth in the darkness, having plundered death and broken the curse for all his people. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so it should be no surprise to us that the reversal on Easter is the very same as the reversal that took place in the temple of Dagon. Jesus wasn't trapped in the tomb with death. Death was trapped in the tomb with Jesus. Jesus wasn't the God who was dethroned. He was doing the dethroning. Even as he was flogged, beaten, and crucified, his hands and feet pierced, not a single bone of Jesus was broken, fulfilling the prophecy and, and fulfilling the idea of the Passover lamb. Sin and death weren't so lucky. He knocked their noses off, cut off the heads and hands of our last enemy. Furthermore, as with the toppling of Dagon, no one actually witnessed the miraculous Events. They don't see it happen. They only see the after effects. An angel ostensibly witnesses Christ's resurrection, but his disciples only see him risen. The priests of Dagon saw that something was amiss as they approached the temple. The women as they approached the tomb. And maybe we would prefer that there were a large number of witnesses who saw the actual resurrection, adding to what is already, I think, overwhelming evidence for the truth of the resurrection but we, we might think, why couldn't a bunch of people see it like people saw Lazarus rise from the dead? And I think the answer is that his resurrection is as much a mystery as his incarnation. It's beyond our ability. We couldn't have dealt with it. And Jesus, of course, says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But not only do they see it from a distance, they go inside. First, who arrived? Peter and John. They had a race. And when they went in, what did they see? This is important. They see on the shelf within the tomb there where Jesus' body had lain, they see the shroud that had covered his body, had been wrapped around him. Now just lying there on the shelf as though Jesus' body had come right up out of it. And then a ways away, separate from the shroud, there was the face cloth, what's been called the mandilion, that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, neatly folded and set aside. Now think about that for a minute. Dagon's actual head was a distance from his body, indicating what looked to be panic, like his hands and his head were trying to get out the door after they broke off of his body. In Jesus' tomb... On the other hand, he used his hands to remove the head cloth and very carefully, meticulously folded it and set it down a distance away, indicating the opposite of panic. Jesus is calm, cool, and collected and in no hurry. After all, it is finished. And he sets that cloth a distance away, as if to reassure them, listen, no one is trying to flee from the tomb. The tomb itself is now conquered. And what's more, not only do people see the effects of these two events, separated as they are by so very many centuries, they feel the effects as well. Just like the Philistine cities felt the effect 
rats and tumors, or as the King James says, he smote them with hemorrhoids. <laughs> These are both painful and humiliating, and it turned their hearts to wax because they'd been young, strong warriors. And now they were reduced to something less because of this God. They were not able to do what they thought they could do. These bloodthirsty, courageous killers become weak and frightened. That is kind of the opposite of what happens when Jesus defeats death and walks out of the tomb. The weak, frightened disciples become bold and courageous. On Good Friday, I talked about just Peter as an example how he went from being, I'm running away, I'm denying you, I'm weeping bitterly, I'm who knows where on Good Friday, to I'm standing before the Sanhedrin saying, should I obey you or obey God? You tell me. I'm standing in the temple courts preaching, and people are coming to faith left and right. And finally, the connection between these two that you might find tenuous, but you know me and the Bible numbers. Five gold tumors, five golden mice or rats, why? Because there were five Philistine cities, Ashgod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. There's five Philistine lords, and so one for each. What they wouldn't be able to know is that in biblical parlance, five is the number of grace. And it makes us think primarily of the five wounds of Christ by which we are saved. Also makes us think of the five smooth stones that David picked up a little later in 1 Samuel. Jesus on the cross very much like the ark in the temple of Dagon was on display. It was meant to be humiliating. That was the point of crucifixion, to frighten and awe the masses so that no one would mess with the peace of Rome. But we find out in this reversal that it actually was not him at all that was ultimately stripped naked and humiliated. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You hear that? I don't, don't miss that. He took your sins and set them aside and nailed them to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. By being shamed and becoming our sin and guilt, Christ shamed his enemies and took the nose right off them. It looked like death was victorious that day, but in light of the resurrection, we ask with the Apostle Paul, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And the answer he gives, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. One more thing that connects these two, thousand years apart, is that the enemies of God double down, even when they've been clearly defeated. The enemies of Jesus know the body wasn't stolen. They hear the actual report, and they start pulling out more silver, just like they did with Judas, and say, how much is it going to take for you to have fallen asleep on the job? In the same way, the Philistines, they acknowledge that this God is too much for them, too much for their temple, too much for their God, and yet we don't see the Philistines rejecting Dagon. 
60 years later, when Saul, King Saul, is killed in battle, the Philistines behead his body and bring it into the temple of Dagon. Why keep serving him? I think the answer is because he was comfortable. He was what they knew. He was, in a sense, safe. He left them, for the most part, in control. And so they choose to go on believing and serving a broken, powerless God. Assume they gorilla glued the head and the hands back on and never spoke of it again. They're following not based on their experience, what they've seen or what they know to be true, but, but what they want to believe, what they want to be true. And many people do this to this very day, those who have been even convicted to some degree and said, I, I think there's something to this Jesus, but when I count the cost, when I see that this will cost me something, they pick up their broken God, the image of whatever they want to serve, glue the head and hands back on, lift it up because it can't lift them up, put it back on the pedestal and carry on. There may even be people listening to my words right now who are doing just that. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords demands too much of them. It's easier to go with the flow, stick with the culture, just do what everyone else is doing and worship what everyone else is worshiping, namely, I guess, myself in our culture. I implore you today, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, believe in him. Put your faith in him. Turn from your sins. He will forgive you all your sins, wash you, and make you new. He is the one who conquered the grave. Believe in him. He is the God who, he says, behold, I died and I'm alive forevermore. And if you are already a believer this morning, I think the message you need to hear on this particular Easter comes from the angel at the tomb. And it's an answer to the same question that the Israelites were asking when they lost the ark to the Philistines. Why does it seem like our God has been conquered by his rivals? Why do I look around and say, it looks like we've lost or at least are losing today, the rivals not being Dagon, of course, but secular humanism or generic spirituality or some kind of rebranded paganism or even just religious apathy. All of these things seem to be gaining while our God is losing his position. But there have been innumerable times going all the way back through all of the pages of Scripture, when God's people have asked the same question. In fact, it's the subject of many of the Psalms. David says, why, why are we the ones who are fleeing when you are supposed to be the God of heaven and earth? Think of all the years when Israel was oppressed by the nations worshiping Baal or exiled to Babylon where they worshiped Marduk. Why are you still worshiping this old God, they were asked. we got better gods. In Jesus' day, it was, look around at the might of Rome. We've got a whole pantheon of gods who have made this possible. We are completely overshadowing and doing away with your Hebrew God. Just like those seven months when the ark was in the possession of the Philistines, it seemed like our God was obsolete. But just wait. Keep reading. Be patient. In each case, who is obsolete now? No one worships Baal. No one worships Dagon. Where even is the temple to Zeus in Lansing? Is it on canal? Oh, that's right, there isn't one. Our God endures forever. We can look back at the graveyard of abandoned deities, abandoned worldviews, the followers of whom all sat back smugly saying, how do you worship that outdated, dusty, old God? And now they're all but forgotten. 
Just a lonely Wikipedia entry that hardly anyone ever visits. The same will be true of the declawed, defanged pseudo-god of our Western culture today, who is everything and nothing and whatever we want him or it to be. And yet I keep on hearing Christians, Christians, lamenting how very bad it's all gotten. And I know it's been a hard year. But people say, sure, Christianity and our God have had their their challenges, their rivals before, but this is different. This now is different. How? I'd expect the world to believe that today's rivals to the one true God are somehow special, are the ones that have finally dethroned him and will do away with him and cast him onto the dustbin of history. We would expect that, but I can't understand people in the church, and there have been in every age who can look back at the the trail of chopped off heads and hands of false gods littering history, cast aside by our God and affirm, yes, our God is mighty. And then look around in our own day and say, but these rivals are special. These will endure. These we should be afraid of. Whether we're talking about false gods or new trends toward unbelief or what seems to be a growing political and cultural hostility toward the gospel or the glut of heresies and false Christs being proclaimed. None of that is special. None of that is new. And when we think that way, we're embracing a very humanistic point of view. We're limiting God to the moment in which we exist, the moment we are limited to. We're buying into the old line, real old one, from the 12th century B.C. Guys, Dagon is new. Jehovah's old news. Or the first century A.D. Zeus is where it's at. He's all but snuffed out this God of Israel. Or Thomas Paine in the 18th century saying the Bible is fairy tales. Or Jean-Paul Sartre in the 19th century telling us God is dead. Or Nietzsche in the 20th century telling us God is dead again. Or whatever. None of these are special. None of them have dethroned the God of the universe who conquered the grave. All of them will be forgotten. Dead like Disco, dead like Dagon. The philosophies of this world are a flash in the pan, a broken fish God, an empty tomb. Our God is eternal. The end of our nation is upon us, I read this week. I read on Holy Saturday from the the pen or the keyboard of a believer. And they said our, our nation is going to end and the church may be with it because we've abandoned Christianity. I don't think you know very much about the beginning of our nation, if that's where you're coming from. 1776, was everyone a committed Christian? No! The age of reason was upon us, supposedly displacing the God of the Bible, toppling him from his pedestal. He'd soon be a memory. What percentage of colonists were church members at the beginning of the Revolutionary War? 90? 95? 17. You ever go to those little colonial towns? I think that's very fun. You see the little church meeting house and go, how could there possibly only be this many people in the church? Everybody fit? No, hardly anyone went to church. That's what was going on. Sure, there was some sense of a higher power, a creator of some kind, but not not this God, not the God of the Bible. That time was behind us. We were moving on to bigger, better, more progressive things. And everyone said, Now that that's happened, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. There's no going back. That's over. Clearly it wasn't. 
And then this past week, I also read a news story, church membership dips below 50% of the population for the first time since we've been keeping track in like 1932 or something. And again, an upswelling of Christians saying, woe is us, it's over, Ichabod. Our God defeated death. What are you worried about? The God who knocked Dagon to the ground, the God who raised Jesus from the dead is still on his throne. And so I think the best words for us this Easter morning of 2021 come from the lips of that angel when he said, do not be afraid. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen just as he said, do not be afraid. If you're a Philistine priest and you find that your merman fish god is broken on the floor, yeah, be afraid. But if you're one of God's people and you hear the stories that Dagon has been broken to pieces and his people conquered without a single Israelite picking up a sword, you aren't filled with fear. Why would you be? And if you follow Jesus and you have heard and received the good news that death has been put to death and captivity led captive, who then shall we fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? In Psalm 27, we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When our God seems to be losing is when his enemies should begin to quake. Remember the words of Jesus, and let me close with these. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son Jesus did overcome the world, and we thank you that he did not do it in wrath, with rats and tumors or fire and brimstone, but with his own death on a cross, taking on his shoulders the sins of the world. And Lord, I do pray if anyone here has not placed their sins on his shoulders, has not put their faith in him, and trusted him for salvation, that your spirit would draw them to you right now. They would recognize that you are not just one of the many gods littering the history of humankind, but that you are the God who has endured, and you are the God who has overcome, and you are the God in whom there is salvation. We thank you for the truth that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.